This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 11, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 317 of Defender Radio. There are nearly 200 volunteer-run animal rescue organizations in British Columbia. The majority of them do not receive government funding, have little to no full-time staff, and have countless animals depending on them. But there's hope for them all. Paws for Hope was founded five years ago in British Columbia with a dream of creating more sustainable animal welfare and purposeful companion animal protection in the province. From providing infrastructure grants to helping street-involved persons or low-income families afford veterinary care, and running educational campaigns about pets to hosting compassion fatigue workshops, Paws for Hope is keeping busy. Kathy Powelson, the executive director of Paws for Hope, joined Defender Radio to explain the background of this organization, the current campaigns, and where they hope to go in the future. Pause for Hope. Um, I, I've been through your website. I, I've heard Leslie Fox, our executive director, uh, ranting and raving about you and this organization. Can we start with the story? How, how did Pause for Hope come to be? Sure, yeah. So um, Pause for Hope was founded five years ago. It's actually our fifth anniversary in June. Um, probably two years before that, or no, sorry, a year before that, I um, I received an email from someone and it was a forwarded email um, from a local rescue organization that was desperately looking for foster homes for five dogs in a local shelter. And they needed foster homes by Saturday at noon or these dogs would be killed. And I got the email Thursday evening. And I remember thinking, how does this happen in our country? Like how, how do dogs die because of lack of space in a, in a shelter? Um, and because my background is in community development and community engagement, um, I sort of, asked that question from that framework and just started to look at what animal welfare in BC looked like. And up until that point, I'd had no involvement in any organization, no volunteer um, involvement or anything. And so I really was starting with fresh and naive eyes, trying to figure out what animal welfare in the province looked like. And I, and coming from social services, um, I was shocked that there is no funding for animal welfare in the province. There's no outside of municipal shelters. And, uh, some once in a while, the, the government will give the SPCA some money, often, it's most often for infrastructure. Uh, but there's no consistent funding, um, for animal welfare. So I was really surprised by that. I was really surprised by the number of organizations that operate on a 100% volunteer basis. Um, and, and really, um, at the risk of sounding a bit dramatic, the lives of animals are dependent on the goodwill of people. And, and this is not specific to BC, as you know, it's, it's actually, I think it's worldwide. Um, and, and, and I, I find that just quite, I found that quite shocking. And so 
I wanted to create something that could help to uh, create a stronger infrastructure for animal welfare in BC and um, wanted to provide some kind of umbrella where we could support the work that's being done and and really start to advocate for change and so that that's basically the the basis for for where pause for hope came from and, and it took me a year to 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 get the nerve to actually formalize it as an organization that was quite initially quite um uh nervous about it was quite overwhelming um everything that needed to be done to start up an organization so it took me a year but we got we got a board together and our founding board and we were incorporated on uh, june 16th in 2011. well that's great and it, it is a very daunting process um <clears throat> these days to get get going um uh, especially under the last government which uh, did not make a lot of fun for uh, charities and nonprofits, but no, and it and it did it, it that you're absolutely right, and and that that did um, influence our mandate uh, to a degree because, as you know, uh, our last government uh, doesn't didn't like uh, animal welfare or environmental groups, um, and and they they don't want any of us to advocate. So um, we were very, as a small organization, um, <clears throat> wanting to get charity status. Uh, you know what what our what our mandate was was very much influenced about uh, with with that in mind. And so our advocacy work uh, is not as large as we'd like it to be, and we've more sort of focused it on trying to mobilize the community. Uh, to be their be their advocates, and so giving them the tools that that they need to advocate the government for change. Yeah, and that's um, it's it's great to see what you are doing, though. And I think you can never say that actions do not result in advocacy. And, and I think we're going to see that very very quickly here as we get into um, on your website the Our Impact page, which is beautifully done, and I really like the way you've got it set up. So. Your guardian angel program, um, I think, it is very interesting. And this is something that I, I often wonder why we don't see more of, maybe, in various regions. So could you explain a bit about what guardian angel is, what the program does? Mm -hmm. So the guardian angel program is really why we exist. And that is the program that is meant to help support um, sustain and improve the animal welfare organizations that currently exist in the province. And also to create some kind of criteria um, that organizations can operate, operate under that indicates that they're operating um, responsibly. Um, so the guardian angel, the, the, the biggest thing that we do under this program is provide grants to organizations for various different functions. We have a grant, um, for veterinary care, uh, for animals in, in their care. We have a grant, um, to provide transport of animals and as, and I, and I, I understand this is the issue in all provinces in Canada. The animals in the northern parts of the provinces are often in much dire need than uh, for us along the coast uh, and in the mainland. And often uh, there are very lots of organizations in the mainland that partner with uh, these remote northern communities 
one of their biggest um, barriers is the cost of transportation, transporting these animals from north. And so we provide a grant uh, that uh, either organization can apply for uh, that helps to support that transportation cost. Um, we also, too, once a year have an organizational development grant, and that allows organizations to apply for a grant to help improve their developmental capacity. And so they can improve their website, they can get some volunteer training, um, they can redo, they can rebuild a door, or, sorry, replace a door on their shelter. Um, really anything that helps to uh, to improve their capacity um, that then in turn helps them to improve the work that they do with animals they can do. That is really one of our most popular grants uh, um, because the most organizations that are running here, particularly the ones on a volunteer basis, you know, they raise their money and they try to spend almost everything that they raise on for the direct care of the animals. And what happened, what, what, one of the results of that is the organizational development of that organization uh, isn't isn't as strong as it could be if they had the financial support to, to do that. And so if they can apply for a grant that allows them to update their website, they don't have to worry about using their donor dollars uh, or the, the money they made from an event, then, you know, they're very happy to do that. So we're actually looking at expanding that grant. Um, and to have uh, one that's not just one time only, but but can keep the one time only one and add one where people can or organizations can um, apply to get some volunteer training um, or anything that that they think is going to help to uh, improve their organizational capacity. Really, that's that's really the key is the organizational capacity. And the other one that we currently have is is uh, that we're looking at changing because we don't it doesn't get accessed very much is the one to support compassion fatigue support, and what that's what currently that grant does is provides money um, to bring in uh, a psych a psychologist. Uh, her name is Laurel Horn, and she does really great work with compassion fatigue to do workshops with their volunteers and our staff. And the money for that grant is to pay for Laurel's time as well as any meeting expenses. Um, we're gonna because um, it's not accessed that much, and we're and we're looking at expanding um, the type of support we provide for uh, compassion fatigue or trauma. Um, we're going to probably shift that one to the organizational development one, so it could include. A compassion fatigue workshop but it will include other things as well yeah and that's uh something we're, we're going to be talking about in a bit um mm -hmm. and uh, I, I was going to say one of the things that's interesting with the the infrastructure fund and the operation fund you're talking about um is i remember being on the board of directors of a humane society and it was okay well we need to get this money to improve the, you know the cat room right <laughs> and this much money for transportation for the dogs to so the wildlife thing and so on so forth then it's Okay, well, we need to get new chairs for the staff up front. Right. And where's that money? It just it doesn't yeah, exist. Even, exactly. And, and, you know, you've got volunteers and mm -hmm. minimum wage employees sitting on stools because you can't yeah. afford to buy new chairs. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, and I think that's something people often just don't think about that you need. Uh, no, and, and it's – and, <clears throat> you know, part of our 
part of our hope too through uh, this work and the the advocacy work that we do is to really raise the profile of animal welfare in the province, if not across the country, so people um, understand the importance of the work that they do. And um, and then so there's not this expectation that that we're doing this work for free because there is uh, even within the rescue community, there there is there is a there is a feeling that that this shouldn't be paid work, um, which which I I think is which I, personally I think it's ludicrous. I, I I don't think anything can be done in a sustainable way if you're only vol it, re relying on volunteers uh, and pub pub raising <laughs> pub pub nights right raising money through pub nights and so. Part of our hope is just, you know, and through the Guardian Angel program too, we, we provide community events um, a, with animal welfare focus to help raise the profile. So we have films, you know, we'll, we'll bring in a documentary film. For example, we're bringing one in in June. Um, it's called The Champions, and it's the documentary about the um, many the dogs that were pulled from Michael Vick's fighting ring. Oh yeah, um, and the, and many of the dogs that ended up at the Best Friends Society and with Bad Rap in, in L.A. And so they've done a documentary about that. And so we're bringing that uh, to uh, to Vancouver for a screening. Um, so we try to do things like that to get people more involved in issues that impact animals, to get the conversation going, um, and just to really raise the profile. So um, organizations can start to look at you know having a stronger resource base so they can buy a chair um but also so maybe they can even pay some staff most you know i we just did a scan we actually just released a report where we did a survey um and of the 170 there's a hundred at least 170 volunteer run organizations in bc um a very small percentage have paid staff well, and you know, it's, it, it's, and I, I struggle with this concept as well. And I think it's okay to say we struggle with it, that we don't know mm -hmm. what the answer is. Mm -hmm. um, and for everyone listening to this, I think both you and I have pets around us right now. So that's what yeah. all these strange sounds are. <laughs> yes. I, my, my listeners are actually pretty used to that. Uh, okay. Time time, yes. But anyway. <laughs> you, um, you heard my cat beating up on my dog. Yeah. Well, I, I've had dogs coming and going to check up on me and trying to shit <laughs> from me. Um, and right now there's a hound trying to get it a crumb under my foot. Anyway. Um, and I, what I think ends up happening too, is if you're not treating this in at least some way, with a business model, with, yeah. with staff, yeah. then you start to get into some of the situations where we see hoarding or where we see um, what what can end up almost being neglectful situations because yeah. the level, I, I don't want to say level of responsibility, but that, that level, that chain of command and the legal obligations and all of these safety nets that a business model would include, uh, that paid staff would include. Um, you know, in Ontario, we've got our Workplace Safety Insurance Board that a volunteer wouldn't get unless it's part of a business or a nonprofit or a charity. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. without all of these things there, mm -hmm. you can very easily get into problematic situations. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And the other thing that we saw, we see here, and it was confirmed in the report that we did, was there's a lot of organizations that are really run by one person. 
and it's one person like that's caring for animals in their home and like you like you mentioned that that can often lead to hoarding situations and what but what also happens is there's there's just this overwhelming there's they get two you, you know they have 40 animals in in their home and it takes over their life and 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 that's not sustainable and i don't think anyone should that's how they should spend their life um to to save animals and and it's not not good fair to the animals but it's also not fair to that individual um and and so you know trying to um the, the other thing too with that is if something happens to that person you know which we've seen here in bc um that person gets sick and then there's 40 animals who that person cared for very well when they were well but once they're sick that then what right and and there's there's no sustainability in that model and and so we're really trying to to shift the culture because it really is a cultural shift yeah well and that's there's, there's a lot of that going on in the nonprofit world i think uh charity totally yeah it's just the way we used to do things doesn't necessarily work anymore. Um, exactly. And social services is probably, well, is not probably, is many years ahead of us in that sense where, you know, there's many that are becoming, you know, they are looking to operate more like a business and they get, they get the importance of that. But, you know, social service agencies by far are all paid staff who will, who rely on um, volunteers and volunteers are a very important part of the process, but uh, it, it needs to be sustained by an, an, an operating revenue staff. Uh, it's, it's really the only way. And the, and this, the, the uh, folks in the States have that for the most part figured out. Like there are a lot more, rescues um, that have paid staff on the ground. It really is about creating a more professionalized system. Um, and and I'm always a bit hesitant to use that word because it, it's not to say that the, the, the system is, is not doing good work because it is, but it's so precarious. Um, and, and, and we just, you know, we see really good work being done, but it, it's just not sustainable. And I think we could make such a bigger impact if we approach it, um, looking at it in longer term way about creating a sustainable model. And so that's, that's our, that's really, um, that's our goal. And, 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 and in addition to doing that, like we look at, um what other things uh gaps uh, are needed and and one of the things when we look at improving animal welfare we look at the impact that um animals have on on individuals who are homeless and are low income and are dealing with uh, mental and mental and physical health issues and and we have a program that works to support that as well well and that's one of the ones i want to talk to you about you've got two listed here mm -hmm. um one is Roxy's Relief yeah. uh, that provides support to homeless street involved low income pet guardians. And one of the things that, uh, uh, again, for those who have not been to Vancouver, and I'm from Hamilton, Ontario, which is a uh, relatively lower income city in comparison to, say, Toronto in a right. lot of ways, um, with a lot of blue collar workers and a much higher street involved percentage, I'd say. Um, 
And you don't, I've, I think I've only seen a few people with pets with them. But when I've been to Vancouver, there are some regions where every other person on the street has a dog or a cat. Sometimes they have rats. I mean, yeah. a lot of folks have animals with them. Yeah. And they're living on the streets or trying to live in shelters. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, and, and our, and our homeless population, as you can imagine with our housing costs is, is actually increasing. Um, so whether not only do we see a lot of pets on the street, a lot of individuals that live in the single room occupancy housing, they will have uh, pets that we don't see. And so there's a lot of cats. Um, and like you said, a lot of small animals like rats, um, and, and more and more shelters that are recognizing, um, the importance of that relationship. And so, uh, creating pet friendly how social housing, which is, which is really great. Um, and so we first started our Roxy's relief program, uh, very basically delivering food, uh, to some of the shelters in Vancouver and new Westminster, new Westminster is for your listeners in the East. It's, it's, a about a 20, 20 minutes away from Vancouver. And, and it's it has, for the size of the community, it has a relatively large uh, low-income and homeless population. Um, and so we started just delivering food. And then we got, uh, we were lucky enough to get a board member on in our first year, Dr. Sean Llewellyn, who is really interested in animal welfare and wanted to uh, support uh, the community even even more broadly. And so we then started with doing uh, satellite-free clinics in Vancouver. And so we set up for a day at a shelter uh, with volunteer uh, veterinarians, Sean, Sean being one of them, and then usually uh, Dr. Cindy Duff, who's one of his colleagues, and they volunteer the time for the day, and then a team of volunteer uh, animal health technicians. And in that day, we will see up to 30 pets and we get them examined, uh, vaccinations if needed, uh, parasite control if needed, minor grooming like nail clippings, which which is actually not such a big deal for the dogs because they do so much walking. But uh, for the cats, that's that is a, a really helpful service. And then <clears throat> one of the things that we do is we make a commitment that any animal we see that day um, that requires additional care beyond what we can get in that one checkup, we, we make sure that we get that done. And so often we see pets that need um, dental care um, and dental surgery and, and are sometimes more major surgeries, but um, we will spend up to $10,000 in follow-up care with those clinics. So we do those three times a year in Vancouver. Um, and, and as you can imagine, like they, when we, we advertise them, they're full in, uh, the last one was full within a week. Uh, and that's 30, 30, 30 appointments in six hours. The other, yeah, and and you know, and and the one thing, um, often people, the response to our pro our, our program is there's two responses. People love what we do and they love to support it. And then there's the other response where people say, "Well, aren't you just enabling them? And if they can't afford to have pets, sh you know, should they have pets?" And our position is is it's not for us to make that judgment. Um, and everyone deserves to have a pet. And, and what we see, um, is that 
the, this bond is often their one constant companionship and and it's it's it, in 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 um many who are vulnerable they're iso socially isolated they may or may not be dealing with mental health issues um this pet is everything to them so we feel really strongly um that that they shouldn't be denied that um and also uh what dr llewellyn has has said uh in interviews in the past is clinically speaking uh, these animals aren't much less healthy than what he sees generally in his private practice. Um, so it, it's not like these animals are, are are in horrible condition when we see them. We, we, we know the dental needs are very common to what he sees in his private practice. So what what where we do see uh, more of that you don't see in the private practice is fleas. Um, because there's the, you know, the, the, that type of lifestyle, but with, um, with parasite control, it's easy enough to get underway. So, and then we provide funding assistance. So we do have an, a, an ongoing grant where, where low income families or individuals can apply for funding support to get veterinary care for their pets. Um, we spend between three to five thousand dollars a month on that program, and that's not meeting the need. So it's it, there is a really high need for that, as you can imagine. Well, and veterinary care is surprisingly expensive, and there are not a lot of programs out there outside of, I would say, humane societies, um, which yeah. is directed at the animals in their care. Um, yeah, it is really expensive. And, um, you know, and, and partly it's because of the nature of setting up a practice like clinic, animal clinics are, most of them are like all mini hospitals. So unlike when we go to see our doctor, it's, you know, when we take our pet to see our vet and they need surgery, they actually get surgery right there. And so the overhead and all of that, I think, does... Um, get into the cost of why veterinary uh, care is so expensive you know so and and also it's 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 not covered through um msp or anything and so i think if we were to be paying for our medical care um then i think we might be seeing some more parallels then but we don't we don't see that right yeah. so well and you know it, it what you were saying reminds me i was um last year during a particularly hot day driving down the street and there was a, a street involved gentleman uh we as i said we have many of them in our downtown core um and he was doing his you know scrubbing windows with the dirty uh, cloth and he had his dog with him so he came over and scrubbed my window and gave him a couple of dollars and i had uh, a couple of bottles of water so i passed one to him um and he went over and gave it to his dog before he had any of it and yeah. That to me, that moment really just illustrates that when you hear people say, well, they shouldn't, they can't, et cetera, et cetera. Like they don't love their pets. They don't love their companions any less. And they would not do anything less than we would. They're just in a different situation. It's, it's so true. And, 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 and what you experienced is very common. Many will feed their pets before themselves. Um, and, you know, the working in animal welfare, um, I'm sure you can agree that your income does not dictate whether or not you're a good pet guardian. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of people doing a lot of horrible things to animals that have a lot of money. So it, it, that does, it's not a, there's no correlation there at all. Yeah. It's, um, 
And behaviorally, um, they're often, they're more socialized, the pets, um, you know, because they're always, they don't, they don't um, suffer from separation anxiety because they're always with their person. Um, and they, like when they come into our clinics, you know, they're, they're so much more calm than you see when we bring our dog into the clinic and they're hyperventilating, you know, like, or if a dog can hyperventilating, they're panting and they're, they're nervous and, and that we don't see that with most of the dogs and even cats. Like we have people walking their cats into the clinic on their shoulder. Right? <laughs> we quickly ask yep. them to put them in a crate, but that's, you know, um, just a good indication of how socialized these animals are. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Paws for Hope's Kathy Pallison. Now, I I did want to talk to you about... um... Uh, the concept, I, I, the big picture of compassion fatigue or burnout. Um, uh, and I guess compassion fatigue is the more common term now, um, though burnout's sort of the the similar effect that goes across industries. Um, well, and I would like to even maybe take it one step further and say trauma. Uh, so it would be burnout caused by the trauma. And that um, that's why we're bringing in um, Vicki Reynolds um, to do this, this, this workshop really, and her focus is trauma. Her background is working with survivors of torture. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to sit in on a workshop, uh, cause I do wear two hats. I still am involved in social services. Um, and so I was at a trauma informed conference, uh, for social services and I had the opportunity to sit in her workshop. And when she was talking about trauma and the impact that trauma has on, on our brains. And, um, I sat there and I thought, you know, I think compassion fatigue isn't quite hitting the mark. I think that we're traumatized. And that's how I think we need to approach this. Because compassion fatigue um, really focuses on creating some space for, you know, like creating balance in your life and and taking time for yourself and and how you can take care of yourself and all that's very important i'm not belittling that at all um but you know when i've spoken with some shelter workers for example 
And uh, after I went to this trauma um, workshop, I, I spoke directly to, to one to one shelter worker who's who's quite vocal about the impact compassion fatigue has on her and um, and her staff. And I, and she said, Yeah, you know, you're right. I, it's not like I need another spa day. Um, what I what I really need is 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 more a really more therapeutic approach to to the impact that this work has on 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 us. And so. When uh, when I spoke with Vicky, because Vicky's not, you know, has only ever worked with people who work with people or people that are survivors of um, some kind of trauma, um, I asked her if she if she thought there was a fit, and she said absolutely. Like trauma is trauma is trauma, and the impact of trauma is is the impact of trauma, and and so there I think there are a couple of I think there are. A couple of ways that we experience trauma in animal welfare and rescue. The one is the direct is for the workers who are on the front line and they are directly seeing the animals um, and, and, and what's happening to these animals. Then there is the folks like myself and perhaps you who are maybe one step removed from that but we are seeing the stories, we're hearing the stories, and we're working with the people who are doing that work. And then so there's the vicarious trauma. And even if you're not doing that, but you're actively on social media, um, and you have lots of uh, animal rescue groups on your page, you are seeing these stories day in and day out, and you're often seeing images that are horrific. And that, I believe, creates a traumatic effect in our brains. And then when we are, and, and I'm not an expert in trauma, so this is a really basic, my very basic understanding, but that our, when, when we are traumatized, our brain is working in a very heightened state. And if the rescue community is traumatized, are we always working in a heightened state and is how is that impacting our daily lives and how is that impacting the work that we do? So though that's, that's what that workshop is really going to start to look at. Uh, and how can we support one another in the work that we do to re to reduce the impact of trauma? Well, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is something I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. I spend a lot of time talking about. Um, I'll, I'll give you and, and those who are listening for the first time the, the very brief overview. I have generalized anxiety disorder, um, and it hit me very, very hard when I was about 18, and it took a long time to sort of work through it. Um, and I also worked as a news journalist for about 10 years. I started out on the crime beats. Uh, so a lot of collisions, crime scenes, things like that. And it, it, it's very interesting that how quickly, and I am being okay with the fact that there is something very wrong uh, with, with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, however you want to look at it, as a result of what you have done, is a very hard thing to come to terms with. And we always say there's no stigma, but there is still such a huge amount of stigma. Um, and I, I often find just getting the conversation started can be hard with a lot of people. Um, just to say, and I think the one comment you heard is, I don't need another spa day. Like that's, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't help me taking a day mm -hmm. off and doing something. I, I do a lot of little things every day to try and help. Um, and I, I find that's very, 
interesting just that that's coming up and coming out of people who are working on the front lines as well. Um, and oh, when you are talking with all of these different groups, is it something you hear a lot about from them? Or is it something that if you prod them, it will come out? Yeah, it's if you prod them. And and I, I think, you know, if you're, if you look at the nature of some of the interactions that happen between people, you can see that they're operating at a heightened level. And it's, you know, like if we, and, and that's not helping the situation. It's not certainly not helping them. And so I actually think it impacts our ability to come together as a community and to work together because there's so much, there's so much trauma that's added on to um, feelings of isolation that, you know, the, the, the constant crisis that people feel like they're working in when we're so underfunded and um, desperate, there's, the, uh, there is this feeling of desperation that we need to save all these animals and we can't possibly save all these animals because I'm only just one person and no one else understands what I'm going through. Like, I think there's a lot of that that happens um, I, you know, and, and so one of the things that we are really trying to do in addition to, to directly focusing on the trauma is to start to actually bring the community together and to say, how can we, despite our differences, come together with shared work to improve the lives of animals in our province? And so the Saturday that we have Vicki coming in to do the trauma workshop, the following day we have a, another facilitator coming in to ask that question, how can we increase our impact by working together? And, I, and, 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 and that was the, putting those two on the same weekend was very deliberate. Um, my hope was that everyone that was coming to the Sunday one would come to the Saturday, that, but that's not happening. Um, but we are getting a lot of people that are interested in coming, coming, into, coming to the workshop around increasing our impact. So for me, that signals that there is a readiness in the community to start to come together and to work together to support one another and to, to do things to improve the lives of animals. I think many of us work in isolation. Like, Michael, there's 170 volunteer-run organizations in BC. 170. <laughs> like, that seems so, that's like, that seems like such a large number. But we're not all working together. Well, and that's, I, I don't know how to respond to that truthfully. I mean, it's, yeah. And this is something that, you know, uh, the fur bears we look at is, are we going to work with this group or that group and what projects come up and so on and so forth. Yeah. And there's political, financial, emotional yeah. reasons to or to not do these things. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that the uh, Chris Corrigan is, is uh, the facilitator for Sunday. And he's, he is, um, this is what he does. Uh, he, he, he can, he's going to help us start to sort through this and we're not going to solve the answer. We're not going to have the answer, excuse me, the end of the day, it's the beginning of conversations, you know, and, and, and there is an ethical component in there, right? Like you said, like we, like philosophically, 
can we work with this group because we don't philosophically and ethically can't stand by what they what they work towards right so this not to say that every single organization can come together um but i i i believe there is there is there is a lot of us that fundamentally come from the same place and we may not agree on everything but on the important things we do and that's where we want to focus and then with that what can we do together to improve the lives of animals and create a more sustainable professional system so when i don't you know when i started pause for hope i intentionally didn't go on the board um for a couple of reasons one is the intent is always is and i'm still not a paid staff but the intent is to get me to be paid um but the most important part is that i didn't want this to become the Kathy Paulson Foundation right and so how can we help to support organizations um who are doing really good work to survive beyond that one or two person doing the work right now and i i think an interesting spot for us to wrap up um and this is something i'll often ask people and it always means a great deal to me to hear the different responses um and i think it just kind of playfully works nicely is is about hope um i i believe that things are going to get better i i believe that because i look at history and I look at the facts, and I look at where we're at, and I believe it will happen. And I also believe it because I have to believe it mm. um, to keep doing what I do. So what are your hopes for your organization and for the animals in BC and right across Canada? What do you hope to see next happen? Uh, wow, that's a good question. For our organization, I hope to see, I, I hope we can in the next year um, create the capacity so we can become a fully staffed organization, so we can continue to build upon the goals that we want to build upon. Um, the hopes that I have for the animals is that we can stop the sale, the retail sale of animals in BC so that there's no more puppies or cats or rabbits, ideally small animals too, but uh, sold in pet stores. Um, and that there becomes a major focus on helping the remote Northern communities with their stray animal problems. And we can find better solutions for the mass importing of animals that is coming, that's happening right now. So we have a mass, uh, you know, of those 170 organizations that I indicated, over half of them import from mostly the US. Um, and there's little, and, and it's created quite a problem. And so I really hope we can figure that piece out and that we have a more sustained approach to responding to the issues of animals uh, both here and to our, with our neighbors in, in the south but uh, that we we are looking at saving animals in a professional sustainable way and no longer operating in the crisis mode that we're operating in 
To learn more about Pause for Hope or sign up for the Compassion Fatigue Workshop in British Columbia, visit pauseforhope.org. That's the show for this week, folks. This is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.